As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, and come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Well, that is the theme of today's episode. And you might be familiar with that song if you've seen the absolutely incredible Coen Brother masterpiece, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Very haunting scene in that film where... um, takes place, I guess, turn of the century-ish. And uh, George Clooney and two uh, fellow jail jailbreakers, um, they're out in the woods and they start hearing that song and they start following it and they come upon this haunting baptismal scene where hundreds of people are in white, um, you know, white robes and they're slowly uh, in a procession heading down to the murky river where they're being baptized one by one. Quite a beautiful and haunting scene. And I have been listening to that song nonstop for the past few weeks, and I keep singing it around the house. And I've actually been singing a uh, variation of the song by Doc Watson. It's actually um, down to the valley to pray as opposed to river. And I was even listening to it on my way to this podcast episode with Teresa Bordwine of Green Comfort School of Herbal Medicine in Washington, Virginia. And when she mentioned it, she mentioned this song without me saying anything, and it just came up on its own, and I was just kind of blown away. It felt like a little bit of a synchronicity. This song having such an effect on me, such a soulful effect on me, it's so beautiful. I was interested um, because... Teresa says that old Appalachian song. So I said, oh, I didn't quite realize that. I didn't, you know, I knew it was a folk song, but I didn't quite know um, the story, the history behind that song. So I have been popping around on the internet looking for maybe some brief history about the song. And here's what I found. This is on zealmusicpublishing.com. Not sure what that site is or how um, reputable it is, but um It might be a a record label or something. But anyways, this is what they have to say. Down in the river to pray, also known as down to the river to pray, down in the valley to pray, the good old way, and come let us all go down, is a traditional American song variously described as a Christian folk hymn, an African-American spiritual, an Appalachian song, and a gospel song. It gained popularity in 2000 after Alison Krauss performed it for the soundtrack of the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 
The exact origin of the song is unknown. Research suggests that it was composed by an African-American slave. The earliest known version of the song, titled The Good Old Way, was published in Slave Songs of the United States in 1867. The song, number 104, is credited to Mr. G.H. Allen of Nashville, Tennessee, who was likely the transcriber rather than the author. In some versions, in the river is replaced by to the river. The phrase in the river is significant for two reasons. The more obvious reason is that the song has often been sung at outdoor baptisms, such as the full immersion baptism depicted in O Brother Art Thou. Another reason is that many slave songs contained coded messages for escaping. When the slaves escaped, they would walk in the river because the water would cover their scent from the bounty hunter's dogs. Similarly, the starry crown could refer to navigating their escape by the stars, and the good Lord show me the way could be a prayer for God's guidance to find the escape route, commonly known as the Underground Railroad. Visitors to the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. have reported hearing a hoopa song played there, which has the same melody as Down in the River to Pray. It has also been suggested that certain features of the melody and phrasing are more typical of Native American music than gospel music or spirituals. Well, really, the river feels like the theme of this entire episode. She tells us the stories about the river in her backyard and a river trip that was part of her initiation into herbal medicine. And really, from my point of view, as someone who doesn't know very much about herbalism, my mother is an herbalist, and my mother studied under Teresa for maybe half a decade, if not longer now. And so I've only gathered um, anything I know about the plants from my mom and from my landlady, and who um, is the manager of United Plant Savers, and from Teresa, who's my mother's teacher, today's guest. And uh, I just have kind of learned it through osmosis. So in, in reality, I know extremely little about herbalism. I've messed around tincturing a handful of plants that I have here in the woods, like yarrow. I've tinctured um, black walnuts, um, well, black walnut hulls. Um, and then I've eaten a lot of plants, a lot of the medicinal plants that are also edible um, you know, forageable plants, but I really know extremely little about herbalism. So for me, this episode, and especially with Teresa's unique teaching style, which is very um, fluid. And um, well, for me, it felt like I was even on a river and I'm going down a river and I am just trying to glean little bits of information as I'm rushing down a, uh, a, um, kind of a river of conscious instead of stream of conscious kind of river of conscious. And I'm riding this river and I'm holding on. And while I'm not, uh, whizzing back and forth, um, between rocks and heading down, heading down little rapids and hitting little, little, um, shallow areas where I can just hang out. I'm trying to look onto the banks and gather as much information as possible. Like, okay, well, what does that mean that you just mentioned? What does that mean? What is that word? Um, uh, what is this? What is that? So you'll hear, I'm kind of just trying to hang on and, and glean as much as possible. And 
you know, water is also seen as the unconscious in dreams and in all of my Jungian study. And um, I feel as though Teresa really lets us hear a bit about her inner world. And um, with Teresa and some of our other guests, um, Donna Laprie, for instance, who is a um, an herbalist and a perfumer and um, a plant artist, um, I'm extremely interested in these people, and I'm finding it a lot with the herbal community, um, especially women. And I'm extremely uh, um, intrigued by their very rich um, spiritual life. And so I'm because I feel that that's lacking in myself. I find it extremely interesting. So I'm always trying to ask people, uh, and you'll hear in this interview with Teresa, I'm trying to, even though what I'm asking them could never be put into words, I'm still trying just so I can kind of see what what their very rich inner world is like. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're interested in learning about uh, Teresa's classes, you can go to her website, which is greencomfortherbalschool.com. And she is on Instagram at, at green.comfort. So my dad, uh, Claude Henry Boardwine, was from Southwest Virginia, and he was a sanger. He, you know, um, among many other hats that he wore, uh, loved the ginseng root and had some on his land. He had 19 acres of uh, north-facing slope, um, and the ginseng grew there naturally under huge red oak trees. Hmm. Um, so my first plant I ever found before going to herb school, on my way to herb school, as a matter of fact, was the ginseng. Hmm. He and my stepmom, Elsie, took us out and... Uh, and they were looking all over, and we used golf clubs. He was a golfer. So that was our field stick and our walking stick and just kind of knocked things away. And we were looking for the red berries. It was uh, September, late August, actually, uh, going on to September. And um, sure enough, I saw the red berries and found my first ginseng plant in the wild and was so excited. You could hear me for hollers away. And did you pick that one or I did, did you leave it? I I. I Harvested the whole plant, root attached to the leaf and stem and flower and seed pods were there and everything. Now, Dad always would take the red berries and replant them hmm. and then scatter um, the leaf mulch around it and pat it down. Um, so he had taught me to do that years before, but I'd never really dug root with him. I, I did not grow up there where he was living at the time. That was where he grew up. Hmm. And so he knew the hills and he knew where the the uh, ginseng was and that it naturally occurred on his land. And then all of a sudden here I was going to go be an herbalist. So I was interested. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I found my first root. I actually took it with me to California and I pressed it and put it in my plant ID book because oh, I didn't neat. know what any of the plants looked like at the time. Wow. And you uh, said he carried it on him at all times? He always had a root in his pocket. He liked to wear button-down collared dress shirts with a little pocket, and he would have a ginseng root in there and nibble on it. Always on the golf course, or he he had his own um, furniture store, and he always had a root. Gave me a nice big fatty. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I did move back um, to the States and was in Northern Virginia, driving around the Beltway with a ginseng root on my dashboard, and mm-hmm. I would just chew a little bit, like a quarter 
inch, if that, a mm. day, um, going and coming. Probably mm. just kept my adrenals from blowing out. Yeah. So what? What? Um, what are w- just by chewing on it like that? What is the medicinal um, yeah. qualities that one is taking in? Well, you taste the sweet, so it's For polysaccharide sure. rich. I'm tasting that right now. Uh huh. So steroidal anti-inflammatories, you know, are in mm. there too with these uh, saponins that are kind of, you know, just delicious. Um, we consider it to be an adrenal adaptogen for the medulla, actually, the internal workings of the adrenal gland, which makes up our epinephrine, norepinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline hormone. Mm. So when we have been pushing the envelope um, for so long, it really is rejuvenative and reconstituting, if you will, gives you vitality, stamina, boost energy. It's when you're kind of burned out? Yes. Okay, well, this is great for me right now because I've been painting this mural in Front Royal, which has been months in the making, but I just did like a two-week stint where I was doing some 12-hour days, some 14-hour days, some shorter, but uh, I really felt exhausted after the last stint. So this ginseng is much appreciated. Thank you. You're so welcome. Glad to share it. So yeah, the roots that I pulled out today in the jar, I say do not sell. Um, They're dwindling because I do like to share, but they were the last roots I got from my father and Mm. he passed at 92 and he still had some roots. I had gotten one of the last bunches from him. I I made him let me pay him. So it was a transaction, you know. So these are this is a jar from thirty years ago. Well, he he just died uh, four or five years ago, but okay. they've been yeah they've been preserved pretty well. And I guess the last time he went singing, you know, he was well in his eighties, and he walked up the mountain and was digging roots so happily on my stepbrother's property. Mm. They have to they had to go up after him on an ATV. And he just had hands, and his eyes were big, and they they brought him down on the ATV. He had this uh, bag of ginseng roots, and he gave them to Gary, and then he took off back up on the mountain. <laughs> you couldn't keep him out of the woods. He was so happy there. That is awesome. Yeah. Wow, what a cool little uh, vignette. Very yes. cool. Um, okay, well, now that we've started up here, do you want to tell us a little bit about for the people listening, where we are, like you could talk a little bit about your property, the region we're in, and then this wonderful yurt that we're in. Awesome. Yes, indeed. Um, Well, I've named it Green Comfort School of Herbal Medicine. I moved to this property in 2005 uh, out of Northern Virginia, and I'll come back to how I got here because it was definitely handpicked, divinely orchestrated, I should say, really. And Uh, When I bought the house, I knew I wanted a yurt. I'd been wanting a yurt 10 years or more. So we're outside of Sperryville, which is um, kind of the side of the the Shenandoah National Park. And we're in the countryside, and you have these two— Yes, very rural. And Mm -hmm. you have these two incredible yurts on your property. I do. So in— 2005, when I bought the property, I I got this yurt from Pacific Yurts. It's the only company I'd been following for so long. And ordered the the yurt, and it was uh, then delivered. And then you have to put it up and construct the base and all of that. So exciting. And to finally move in, um, I had nothing in here. Literally plywood floor, empty. I brought in a plastic table, some folding chairs, and we slept in here. And then I'd have class in here. And over the... Next 
you know, five years, I started bringing more things in and developing it. So it's a really cozy space. Absolutely. Um, we have a living room space with a fireplace that's propane uh, fed. Um, my grandma's rocking chair that I sit in to teach and futons and dining tables and leather chairs. And we have a um, cordial bar, which is in one of my a family friend's actual Hoosier that I bought at an antique store nearby. That's my cordial bar, and it has also my cosmetic products. Um, great amount of IKEA shelves that hold uh, over 300 bulk herbs, mm. tinctures, about 200 and some, and another 200 and some um, uh, bulk dry plants. Um, but again, some of them are crossovers, so over 300 actual plants. Um yeah, it serves as my office. My library came in even after the herbs did. Uh, I was worried about the books and the conditions and so on, you know, hot, cold, that sort of thing. And they've done really well. I did replace the bookshelves to, uh, you know, make sure that they were in good condition. So there's there's four windows, and we look out at green, and that's what I love. We're surrounded by the trees, some giant poplars around us, a sycamore that arches over the yurt that is her protector. Uh, we made a you know uh, an agreement when I moved in. I wouldn't cut her down, and she's been looking after us ever since. Everybody wants to cut it down because it leans mm. <laughs> directly. Don't, and your agreement is that over she doesn't yurt. fall. Yep, yeah, she's good. She's really <laughs> healthy and stable right there. Um, so so it's, yeah, you have this wonderful secluded. yurt. That's completely filled with bottles and jars and books, and this is your classroom. It is. And um, you got a river out back? Yes, we're just off of the Rush River and Covington, um, where the confluence is. So the walk isn't very long at all, not, not even 10 minutes down to the water. And to have that running water is fabulous. Mm. But also, that's where all the plants are. Hmm. And again, on the slopes of the riverbanks, uh, when I bought the property, there it had been mowed. It was um, really stilt grass and not even dandelions or violets. I mean, hmm. I've invited all the weeds in, all the plant matter that should be here, and then I've brought some up from the riverbank. So I have black cohosh and wild hmm. ginger and wild geraniums and blood roots and things that I was finding just a few, you know, 100 yards down the, down the path. And brought those up, and they're just flourishing here all around us. Um, so we can walk down to the river, and we have this loop that we do as far as our plant walk goes. And it's it's very comforting to have that running water. It's beautiful there. Again, all of our you plant said you got babies beavers are there. down on the river. There's some beavers, and uh, <laughs> lately they've been eating the autumn olive. Wow, okay. I know. So that was quite, you know, mm -hmm. helpful, actually, to take down the autumn olive. And you can see where they jam them up under rocks, mm -hmm. but I I haven't seen a dam. Mm -hmm. I think now they're just using the banks that yeah, are bank pretty dams. much hollow. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so every so often that bank will drop off because it just caves in. There's not enough um, structure under it anymore. So there's a bit of erosion, but... The river's uh, in good shape. It's a very low river, except twice a year when it floods. Hmm. And it comes through there to roar over my head um, in height. So that's, uh, it's, it's you know, springtime phenomenal when you live at the headwaters of the Chesapeake. And you've got hmm. all the rivers here that run I know. I've been looking at that. But, you know, yeah. just these little cricks that turn into the Rappahannock River, you know? Yes. And uh, fascinating thinking, just... Recently, my girlfriend Vivian wanted to rewatch the Disney Pocahontas, 
And it's just kind of interesting to watch that and think like these rivers, like these mm-hmm. rivers that they're referencing, even in this animated cartoon version, like these are rivers from the Chesapeake. Yes. Like I'm not sure which rivers are they're alluding to in the fictionalized story. Right. But um, yeah, it's just fascinating to be like, we're this is like really close to, yeah, we're at yeah. the headwaters. We are at the headwaters. And there's definitely signs of indigenous population. As we know, the, you know, the whole North America was just uh, very mm-hmm. populated, maybe 450 million people um, before the settlers came. And there's definitely evidence. I have found the, the grinding stones for where you twirl to make your fire. I have found um, uh, rocks that look like draw blades from each side. You draw down for the bark. Uh, barking trees and logs and just all it's kinds to peel of peel the bark off. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For and what purpose? Nice. Oh, well, um, to use the bark or to to clean off the um, bark to use the wood. Either way, like we'll do that for our locust posts because our locust posts make up our um, posts for our handrails coming down. So we skin them for your and, fence. Yeah. Oh, oh fencing yeah. Fencing okay. and handrails and so on. So you, where did you find those things? Oh, down by the river. Wow. Just there. You know, it's Neat. like every now and then something bubbles up and you know it had use and you know that you weren't the first person that ever touched that rock. And the rocks here are just You can just so see that gorgeous. it's been man- manipulated? Oh, indeed. Wow. Oh, indeed. That's cool. And even axe heads. There's some great, oh, you wow. know, sharpened rocks that were definitely, to me, they were axe heads. I, I'm using my imagination, no well, doubt. Well, yeah, but. my girlfriend Vivian does that too. And I, I try to be as open-minded as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how do you know? Yeah, how do you know? We're just going with Maybe it? the rock tells us so. But yeah, you just feel that presence of, you know, ancient cultures. And of course, down at Rock Mills, which I'm just right above, it's a confluence of uh, two more rivers where the, the rush runs into the Thornton. Mm-hmm. And there's a etched out area that we call a swim hole. Um, but don't broadcast that. Um, it actually is privately held. And um, uh, anyway, it's a very sweet place. It looks like lava rocks. Hmm. But then the beach, there's at least four different rocks. There's a red jasper. Hmm. There's the green agate. There's a white quartz. There's blue quartz. There's just so many rocks. And uh, there's been a study of the the orgy that made these mountains and the rocks and how they, you know, came to be and so on. But there's just a, a, a great great uh, variety, even some that have hematite in them. You can pick them up and you just know that that has some iron hmm. ore in there somehow or something hmm. real dense and heavy. So I love Neat. the rocks. I love the rock mills. Neat. Area. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I thought it'd be cool to kind of start this up. Like, let's do a podcast version of a plant walk. So oh, what, sure. what might be some plants that are popping up right now? So we are at the end of April. So yes. what's going on if we went for a walk through your woods? Right. And maybe more on the medicinal front than just the eating front. Indeed. Um, I have established a botanical sanctuary with the United Plant Savers. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I wanted the woodland medicinals to be featured. So I have golden seal that's in flower right now that's just gorgeous. Now, I did bring it here, mm-hmm. um, but it's from local sourced, my girlfriend, that um, was growing it, and United Plant Savers also will send you out some rootlets. So my patch has spread and multiplied, and it's just gorgeous. So I have golden seal root in bloom. My black cohosh is up. Um, I have blue cohosh, and it's like, by now, I'd say knee-high. 
and the the leaves have unfurled. You can see the difference between the black and the blue. One is toothed, and the the blue is more lobed, so it looks like a mitten. And my spike nard is pushing up the. Solomon seal. Root. I don't know spike nard. I haven't heard well, of that. Oh, spike one. nard is an aurelia, and it's naturally found in the Shenandoah National Park. So every now and then you'll see one in the wild. Mm. Mine gets um, over six foot tall it's, mm. and has berries. It's just huge and beautiful. And I use it more as a display plant to talk about because it's in the ginseng family. And ginseng just isn't that large, but then you look at the leaves, and the leaf structure is very similar. So it's uh, there's quite a few things in that Aurelia family that would surprise you that is kin to ginseng, if you will. Um, then I have, uh, well, I have Jacob's Ladders, which is a uh, naturally occurring wildflower, spring ephemeral. Hmm. It's in bloom. It's beautiful right now with little purple flowers. Wood poppies are running rampant. Oh, yeah. I didn't mean to put them in the botanical sanctuary, but they go wherever they want. I've got a bunch at the cabin. Yes. But do those have medicinal properties? Um well, speaking to certain teachers, they might point out the fact that they're in the celandine uh, family. They have that yellow sap. If you um, break their stem, that you could use like a celandine. Um, so they're called celandine pompies sometimes as well. I do not use them medicinally, and that's about the only use that I know. But a spring ephemeral and certainly a woodland plant that should be here and is now very much here. So what does celandine mean? Because I think feel like for the, this podcast, I my hope is to get all sorts of different types of people listening to this. Uh-huh. So there's probably people who don't know anything about herbalism. So right. when you say a word like celandine, oh, oh, I don't I know what that is. Oh, what I is see. celandine? Well, it's a plant. And it's okay. a, um, uh, It's also probably, I don't know the family now that I've spoken about it. I should. Um, but it has a, a yellow sap. Okay. And it has... An- you're not not ancient uses, but certainly in the old world uses, um, it was referred to as being helpful for uh, taking off warts, or mm. if you use that latex, that yellow sap from the celandine. Mm. Um, th- that's why I related it to a celandine plant. Okay, even though it's the wood poppy, it has that celandine ish of uh, active ingredient in there in its um, stem that you can dab on. But so does dandelion. When you break open a dandelion, it has a white latex. Mm-hmm. And it is said that you can put that on your skin tags and on a really? external, you know, application of that oh, kind of Oh, I've never latex. heard that about dandelion. Uh-huh. So useful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the dandelions are popping. I felt like I was a dandelion farmer, and I actually posted on my Facebook account that, um, yeah, I was a dandelion farmer because there were so many this year. We just had an abundance. So we've been picking the blossoms for it. It contains a lot of lecithin, which is great for the brain. And it gives you that yellow sunshine. So it's good for, the I think, the solar plexus. I always think about the IM center as being the, the solar plexus and strengthening that. Um, the leaf is good for the kidneys and uh, urinary tract. It's very full. Uh, it's a diuretic, but it's full of potassium. So that's amazing uh, about the dandelion and can be eaten, and and it's very bitter. And then the root we use as a hepatoprotectant, so it protects the liver uh, against oxidation and oxidative stress. So that's that's wonderful, and I use it in bitters. So dandelion is everywhere. But if we look around and go up, then we're seeing trees. Mm. And I do want to show you my black hall because it's mm. in bloom here all mm. along the sides of the road. It gets our attention as we drive because you kind of know what the 
the dogwoods are. And yes. we see that white plant. They're so beautiful. When you see them Amazing. in the woods, they're so beautiful. Yes. Then they really stand out, don't they? Mm-hmm. It, with those, just the green leaves are just now unfurling. And then we have that that contrast of the white. But at, at the same eye level, if you will, is another white. And it's in a cluster. And you wonder. And it's so it's a viburnum. And this one is prunifolium because it has little um, droop uh seeds that are a, a black fruit in the fall, hmm. wherever the flowers have been. Right now, full flower, gorgeous trees and shrubs along the sides of the roads out here in Rappahannock County off the Skyline Drive. Um, so there's other trees that are just finishing, like red buds. We've been eating red bud blossoms. And yeah, I didn't get a chance. They're still up, though. They are, and we just drove to the other side of the mountain. Hmm. On the west side, they're abundantly available. Okay. It's so interesting how, you know, that um, bio, uh, you know, region can be so different from place to place, but in higher elevation, they're still out. And my daughter just made a red bud syrup, and hmm. that's really fun. And there's red bud honey. So I've been doing a lot of different things with red buds as now, well. Is that just edible or is it also medicinal? Edible, but I always think what a wonderful opportunity to eat that color. Oh, um, sure. You know, it yeah. just kind of warms up your your chakras and gives you that vitality, and it's it's sweet. So I think you know that's something I've moisturizing. I, just like I don't really hear this too often, but looking at the mountains at this point in spring, it seems like equally as um, astonishingly uh, colorful and a variety as fall. I agree. Like there's just different greens and pinks and yellows, and it's. Yeah, I mean, fall is the time everyone says to, you know, look mm-hmm. at all the colors, but I see just as much right now. I agree. I love the contrast between the pines, that dark green mm. that has lasted all winter, of course. And then you get the, um, first the willows, when they come out and it's that bright chartreuse and it's just gorgeous. And now, then we've had the the maples that turned red first and now they've leafed. And the oaks here are the yellows mm. and they're in that yellow-orange category. You know, you could imagine that with um, Quercus, you could think that that would have some yellow in it somehow. You know, the leaf and the the pollen, of course, is dripping down in abundance. <laughs> <laughs> so all those plants you mentioned on our little podcast version of a plant walk down to your river, all of those are native plants, yeah? Native, yes. You're saying the um, cohoshes, the, the golden seal, these are all things that people could find out walking through our region. They could. Right now, down by the river, I've seen some, I saw trout lilies, and trout lily was in bloom recently. The blood roots were in bloom early April, and now you know, just find the leaf, but the leaf is, is a gorgeous indicator. Um, well, I mean, it's just so unique that you can distinguish it from the other um, chordate leaves, like a wild ginger. It's abundantly available down by the river as well, and people were, early on were getting things confused, you know, my students. But then they start to recognize that really deep indented um, finger of the blood root is so different than a, a chordate-shaped um, wild ginger, which is also different than the violets. Um, but it takes a little while. When they're first coming up, early April, um, there's more confusion the wild geraniums in bloom down there, I mentioned that. I just saw the maidenhair fern yesterday, and mm. there's only one patch. And I revere it, and I take people, and I point, and then that's it. 
You know, it's like, there it is. Let's all just send some love. No harvesting. Um, There's plenty of black cohosh to be harvested. Mm -hmm. I tend not to. Um, I don't want to give um, the idea that we're taking so much from the land as we are uh, using it as a botanical sanctuary for education. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll do a little demonstration typically of uh, how to harvest a blood root or how to use a black cohosh root that you've harvested and then replant the nub that's going to shoot up to another plant next year. Right. There's also wild um, yams. I have not seen them yet, but they will be coming on very soon, and they'll just pop right in front of my eyes, and, you know, all of a sudden they're there. Um, The Oh, the wild pink azalea is about to pop down by the river, Hmm. and— you wouldn't know that it it is an azalea. It's tall. It's shrubby. Um, it leans over into the water. And there's a pond on the way down. And I've seen them around the pond and then right on the riverbank. And we go by it to get onto this one particular rock um, that sits right out into the middle of the river, which I just adore. Um, and that plant no one can identify until it's ready to pop. You know, the bark, it blends into other things. It can look like a, so many different things. And it's just such a cool find. And then when it's in pink blossom, which will be the first week of May, that's right around the corner. So for some of these plants you've mentioned, if someone's listening who doesn't know anything about herbalism, mm-hmm. can you describe how um, one would use some of these plants? Yeah, so you've absolutely. you've talked about black cohosh. You've talked about um, golden seal. And um, maybe wild yam or Solomon yeah, seal yeah. would be awesome. Um, I don't know anything about the, I know how to identify wild yam, but I don't mm-hmm. really know much about it. I think I included it in in the Herbaceous Human Coloring Book. I think my mom did. Oh, indeed. Yes. 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 So oh, yeah. I, okay. Philippe, so, I love that we have that connection. Yeah. Well, I guess right <laughs> now is a good time to say thank Interject. you for being a huge, um, so I guess maybe we can get into this after talking about some of these plants, but. Um, my mother has been studying under you for years and years and years. It must be like half a decade. I don't know. I suppose. Um, it's over she's done five, a, yeah. Yeah, so she's done a lot of classes with you, and you've been her main herbal teacher. And um, one of her final projects, one of your final projects <laughs> was, uh, well, she— it was for the foundations yes. class. She decided to, because she's very IT-minded, she yes. she compiled plants um, by their body systems, yes. and then I illustrated it. We made this book called The Herbaceous Human, and um, that has kind of transformed my life. So thank you for being part of that. Um, I'm glad to be a facilitator. So yeah, I know Wild Yam was in that. Is it yeah. It's for the, in the stomach? Is it for the oh, stomach? Um, it is an anti-inflammatory and an antispasmodic. It can be used for the biliary duct as an antispasmodic. And that would mean if you're having a gallbladder attack or mm. if you're having this pain and you think and you maybe have a little gas, a little burping, something's going on, you don't know what's happening. Um, I would certainly consider wild yam as being a, a, a useful plant at that point. So it can be used for digestive as you were mentioning, because also common biliary duct takes the pancreatic juices also to the small intestine. So it could be either, you know, pancreas spleen or the liver gallbladder and maybe a little gravel, a little sludge that would cause that to happen. So anything that would help 
reduce inflammation hmm. could be useful across the board. So we can go muscle skeletal system and on down through body systems and find very wonderful uses for that plant. It is a little root and it it would take quite a lot, you know, to supply, let's say, uh, you know, a, an herbal operation. Um, but it's one, again, I like to show because it grows as a rhizome and it's very knobby. And there are different um, species of them around the world. So hmm. we might talk about Jamaican wild yam or Dioscorea velosa is the herb that we're talking about. And when uh, it, it was found initially and they recognized that there were these steroidal saponins. And when you hear steroids, you think anti-inflammatory because steroids are used for inflammation. And um, sure enough, saponins or uh, saponification is soapy. It makes things, you know, foam up, if you will, and gives it some, um, some. it reduces friction, basically. You know, mm. it gives it that lubrication. Mm. So that's what wild yam gives us. Well, they studied these steroidal saponins and then found they were precursors to female hormones. There was um, a constituent that they could build from, and therefore gave birth to birth control pill in the lab. Mm. <laughs> so that's that was the plant that has, um, in the 50, changed the course of women's um, direction, you know, back to the workforce, all of these things from uh, a plant that was given enough research, enough hmm. look. Well, let's go look at that. Let's hmm. see what we can do with that. How is that applicable? And sure enough, it keeps progesterone around. And when you have progesterone around, your body thinks, oh, never mind. I I've already conceived, you know, hmm. and it's in that luteal phase. So, the you know, maybe the egg doesn't um, implant. And that's the idea. We were tricking the body into um, this false sense of, uh, I, uh, no, thank you, ma'am. I've already, you know, implanted. We're good here. And that's how that came to be. So we're grateful for scientists, ethnobotanists, biologists. So was the plant ever used to look in deep. some function like that pre? Oh, I'm certain it was. Mm. I do not know the story, but in indigenous populations around the globe, mm -hmm. every female group culture would know which plant to use. Mm. And they learned by doing and trial and error, no doubt. Um, one of my first... So what uh, would it do? Oh, I would think that it would either stimulate a, an, abor an abortion, which mm. is a miscarriage, mm -hmm. or it would keep one from um, impregnating mm. um, because the, or, uh, the egg would not implant. So it might make the inside of the uterus slick or something like mm. that. Yeah, change the viscosity. How would they have consumed it? Oh, I can only imagine, and this is through Clan of the K-Bears, you know, ethnobotany on on uh, through the years and stories that I've heard others share, but it could have been consumed in so many different ways. I mean, people eat roots, no doubt. Mm. People would have boiled roots and drank the juice. Um, I can't name other plants, but certainly when we look into text, even as an educator, 
to find information about abortifacients or what we might— Abortifacients? Abortifacients would be the category that we would be talking about that would tell the body not to impregnate. Wow. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the morning after pill. I'm not talking about that. I'm not condoning. I just—I'm not—there's no even judgment or, um, you know— uh, feeling around that, it just is. Mm-hmm. And this is the development between people and plants as we've been co-developing together since humanoids, you know, have come, come That's to fascinating. be. So would it have been taking at, like continually or after? Or? That's that's all that's all hearsay and speculation at this point. Um, there are some plants like a Queen Anne's lace that's said to be taken after like a morning after, um, to keep contraception down. But when you are, you know, a female teaching to mostly female population, Mm -hmm. this is a very um, interesting question that one poses, and plants are looked at. Uh, Many I've looked at and just, um, I dispel. Um, They're very toxic, and why tox yourself out? There's just you know, other means to an end. and uh, But it's interesting on a historic aspect to give relevance to this one little plant that we have growing in nature right around us. Literally, I have found, I think, 40-year-old roots when I've gone up and done some um, rescue, plant rescue, where they were putting in a road through a wildlife preserve mm. and found just these huge wild jam roots. So I can imagine anybody that had... Um, habitated, you know, inhabited this land and around us, knew knew of the uses of that plant long before, you know, we'll just say white man's medicine. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so that was kind of wild yam. <laughs> um, That's a wild ride with wild yam. Let's do, a, let's do another one that you mentioned. So okay. So you mentioned bloodroot or, so what would be a use today? And then, so I like what yeah. we're starting here. Right. So uses today and then traditional uses. Yes. I love that stuff. Well, um, I don't have bloodroot in particular on um, sanguinaria candidensis. So, sanguinarine is a chemical, phytochemical from the bloodroot. Again, what is phytochemical? My mean? my, uh, my ancestors would not have known the name of that, right? But they used it. So I'll come back to that. The phyto is plant mm-hmm. in uh, Latin, and chemical any substance that's naturally occurring in in this case a plant. So, um, we've used that term and stretched it. There's phytonutrients, mm-hmm. phytoceuticals these days. So, most people are getting that phyto is plant. It's mm-hmm. a plant-based chemical. So, when we look at that um, constituent, um, we can say that it has been used by companies and um, capitalized on by Listerine. Um, it is a uh, the sanguinarine has been used um, for, by Listerine. The Doesn't company that sound Listerine familiar. Uh huh. Has used bloodroot. Yeah, 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 yeah. How and so? It's, well, it would have been uh, probably um, synthesized at some point in time, but initially found out it kept the cavities down, or it mm. kept the mouth ulcers down, or it was so antiseptic that they were going to simulate that and put it in their their product. And that's how a lot of plants have been used. You know, even today, 75% of our um, medicine is blood root as, you know, breaking the root and burning off the warts, burning off the moles. Right. That I guess it, the the liquid that comes out of that literally blood red root 
Yes. Is very, uh, what's the right word? Necrotic. It Necrotic. eats tissue. <laughs> eats tissue. Wow, I like so that So you word. don't want to overuse it by any means. So every so often, I'll take a root um, and I'll make a salve, you know, uh, oil extract it and then come up with a salve if I need something like that. And I've certainly treated or, you know, offered to others um, the idea of having something for their... Um, skin cancers, you mm. know, flaky places, basal cells, and that sort of thing, if they'd already had it identified and wanted to work on it topically, um, something that might be helpful. But I don't try to, you know, go deeper than that because that could be very caustic for sure. But this is the way that my my ancestors taught me is take one root and mm-hmm. put it in a pint of whiskey. Mm. And during uh, what we've just been through, this pandemic that attacked the SARS virus, that attacked the lungs, use it like that for pneumonia, hmm. for deep bronchitis, for something like emphysema that went deep into the lungs hmm. to help flush that out. And I just thought that was fascinating. One root, one pint, which is two cups worth of alcohol, not one to five, not one to 10, you know, just put a root in a bottle and I they like left that. it there, right? Mm-hmm. And they take a little sip, much like, you know, Aunt, my uh, Appalachian ancestors did with uh, whiskey with lemon and sugar. That would be the medicine um, that they would have in their cupboard for a real deep lung congestion. So mm. having a little blood root in there, that made sense to me. And that's how I would use it for blood poisoning. You know, that really deep, when it gets down in your body and you need to chase this um, out of your um, blood. Um, so I think... I, I, Again, use any of this with caution. This is mm-hmm. a tale. Uh, this is information that mm-hmm. um, gets passed down, and sometimes it's hearsay versus the actual um, usefulness in the in the modern um, herbal apothecary or pharmacy. But interesting one to to note and to get to know. My stepmom and I dig it in Southwest Virginia. She's got a nice little stand, and we'll get a couple of blood roots. And she's had skin cancer, so mm. we have made a little something for her um, to make sure that it doesn't burn the skin, but it kind of helps with that penetration, and she has nodules underneath um, the skin. And so we've worked with castor oil. And you see it works. You can see it. It does It does help. She, mm. she likes it very much, and she's very trusting. Um, and we go pretty gentle, but... Um, Gentle but effective. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So some others that we might see, I would like to talk about Solomon Seal. Let's do it. Yeah. So polygonotum. Um, What's that? Well, that's Solomon Seal's botanical okay, name. Okay, all right, all right. So the, I mean, you got you know, I'm an extreme novice on Thank this. you. So there's two words to each name, a binomial, by right. name. So the first one is the genus. And there's a lot of polygonums, but this is a polygonotum. There's an extra little syllable in there. And it um, its species name, it could be like multiple species, you know. There could be uh, uh, biflorum, multiflorum. There's, there's a couple that are useful. Even these days, we're using the ornamental, which is a variegated green with white because it can be grown in one season to these big fleshy white roots and very applicable for its anti-inflammatory offerings. And um, 
made into a oil that could be converted to a salve very easily for sore, achy joints. Mm. And when the seal of Solomon was used, Solomon seal, um, it was like it it was imprinted, and it showed that it was really good for knuckles, for knobby joints. It does grow as a rhizome, and it actually looks like the end of your fingers when you've bent them back, the knuckles or the finger joints. Um, the root looks like that. The root does, mm. yeah. Uh, full of uh, polysaccharides, very sweet. It's actually very delicious. It even smells a little bit like maple syrup to me. Mm. Um, I like to decoct it. So I'll dig up some fresh roots, wash them really well, chop them up, put water over them, you know, twice as much, maybe three times as much, and then cook it to half. And with every three cups of liquid, my decoction that's been, you know, concentrated, I'll add a cup of brandy. And it doesn't really need any maple syrup, but every now and then I put a little maple syrup in it anyway, because it does help stabilize and it tastes delicious. So for someone listening who's not an herbalist, the alcohol is used as to preserve? Yes. Yeah, so water will rot in a matter of days. Mm. Um, so if you make a nice big decoction, it might um, be preserved by refrigeration for hmm. a week even um, because you've taken out a lot of the water. Um, if it's a tea, it's going to last two to three days hmm. maximus, uh, maximum, even refrigerated, but it can go off within 24 hours very easily. Water just, you know, um, isn't stable. So to stabilize anything that's a water extraction, you would want... Um, I say 25%, and that's easy for me. If there's four cups in a quart, then I'm going to make that one cup, you know, the fourth cup, uh, some kind of alcohol. Brandy's only 40% alcohol. It gives it enough to stabilize it, and, of course, it makes it delicious, and it doesn't just taste like alcohol either. Um, so a syrup can be made and refrigerated and then taken in smaller doses. Mm. Um, I usually say a tablespoon at a time because you want the medicinal dose. It's very anti-inflammatory. So for people who have, you know, bone on bone or just a lot of inflammation around a joint hmm. um, that's been maybe broken or somehow stretched, swollen, sprained, strained, that sort of thing, um, Solomon Seal will be excellent on, for Topically them. on top of your skin? Well, internally as a syrup and then topically as a salve. Got it. So you can make a salve very easily by soaking that same root in oil. And if you use a little heat, you can extract it a little faster as heat does warm things and brings it out into solution, which in this case would be the oil. And, uh, and olive oil is what I use often. And so you would, um, you know, warm it, extract it into the oil, and then, you know, you could stabilize that by just saying, okay, you're going to sit over here in this brown bottle and wait for me to make the salve or just go ahead and turn it into a salve. One cup of um, oil and one ounce beeswax, and it sets up really nicely. Hmm. So you melt your beeswax and have your nice My girlfriend oil Vivian in there. just got this book, Under the Witching Tree. Cool. Um, super cool book. It's very um, like folk. Herbalism has a lot of the folk tales kind of attached to it. Nice. But the author, she was talking about making, was it salves? Well, making balms or something, but with mm -hmm. animal fats. Talking oh, about yeah. mixing like bear fat with elderberry. I was like, that's, nice. wow. So elderberry is the witching tree, by the way. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, often found to be the witching tree. And um, of course, there's witch hazel too, which is a mm -hmm. portal, um, I think, what to the mean? other world. 
it leans out and it embraces you. And I think it invites you to do this passage under its arms. Um, so to me, I always envisioned like in 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 the old world uh, Europe, you hear the standing stone circles and the tree circles. What's that? Um, any place that you would go for sacred space and mm. ceremony. You know, each kind of culture around the world has their sacred space, whether it's the fire pit or the wishing well mm-hmm. or standing stone circle. And that's the way I think of these witch hazels. The ones on the way to the river lean over, mm. and I always feel like I'm passing under, mm. you know, and it's it's a portal into the other world where you you don't limit your imagination and you see what good, you know, the earth and nature has provided for us and and we're taught how to use it. Mm. So it's kind of part of that. That's what the witches were doing, you know, so using get, plant medicine. Do you have an example of maybe some information you've got while going through the witch hazel threshold that you don't mind sharing? Mm. It's my place of comfort to go down by the river. Uh, uh, there's a couple of different rock outcroppings. One I call the goddess um, throne, and another it's god rock. And it's just a great place to meditate by a babbling brook, right? And and zone out and follow the birds and listen to the sounds and, you know, let go of um, issues and worries and concerns Say your prayers, you know, offer uh, offerings to the water. The water here goes to the Chesapeake, and that's the ocean. And those oceans cover the planet, if you will. And, um, you know, there's more water than land, really. And that just blows my mind. And they're all connected, and there's all the same amount of water on the planet. So my mind can go there and analyze that. But when I'm there, I just, like, let it go. You let it go into the water, your concerns, your worries, your griefs. If someone passes, I make a floating boat and let it go down the river. You know, you put your flowers in. You All around the world, you see, you know, ceremonies in India where they go to the river and the rivers, you know, of Jordan, you know, you dip seven times. And, um, and you know, there's just so many stories, even the ancient stories about water. So I love the water. Love the rocks. That's like grandfather. Just you sit on the mountain on a rock and you know instantly that you're connected to all that there is from the core of the earth. You just, you feel it in the stone. You know, it was magma pushed up. You realize that it was, you know, millions of years ago, especially these old Appalachian mountains. It's one of the oldest ranges on the planet. And it's it's so old, it's worn down, um, except for our gorgeous Old Rag Mountain, which was actually pre-Cambrian uh, orgy that pushed up long before the, the Blue Ridge Mountains did. So that just, again, blows my mind. So as I'm sitting there, I'm not trying to think about all that. It just is, and it kind of comes into play and provides that solace and that place of contentment that you can just be. So when I go through my um, the portal, um, I find it to be not in this world. Like I, I don't take my bills down there. You know, I don't take those worries with me. I, it's it's of the other world. I'm listening to 
you know, the the rocks that have something to say and the trees that have something to say and, you know, trying to, you know, tune into the plants that are there now that are sharing their their stories and their wealth of information and what they've seen over the years. The pawpaws right now are in bloom down down there on the riverbank and that little red blossom, you just think, if what if we were the the um the bee or the I should know what they're pollinated by. I think it's a fly. And if what if we were that fly on that flower? Or what if we could go up into that flower? That's another portal, you know, that's another whole experience that I may not have in this human body, but just in your imagination. You know, just like I was sharing about the rocks, how I would pick up a rock and I would feel that, you know, this is connected to ancestors that have been here, people that have, you know, had uh, the soap wart that grows there right by the river, how they pounded those roots and washed their clothes, you know, how the people that ran the mill down here at Rock Mills floated logs down. There are trails on either side with um, stone fences up on either side and fords across the river. They had a, a, a mill house just, you know, a few feet away at the river's con, um, convergence where, that you know, it's the stories of those folks, how people logged the land, how people, you know, raised crops, the rat wagons that went through wow. the, you know, the people that lived here first, first people, first nation, the, the, um, the settlers that came through that found home here, uh, cleared the land, timbered the land, made the rock walls and uh, started floating the logs down to be planed and make their own little cabins and You'll see a little bit of foundational work every so often and things like that along these rivers and up in the hills and hollows. You know, you definitely see um, that people have inhabited this land for quite some period of time. Um, Praying over the water changes water. You know, and I I do believe that uh, Jesus was the uh, way shower that showed us that. And um, that one could change the energy of the water with your thoughts and prayers. And, you know, that's, and again, Native Americans have been doing this. Um, the Japanese gentleman, um, Maso Emoto, he would take pictures of the water and then look at the crystalline form, you know, before and after certain words were said. The energy that we bring to whatever it is makes a huge difference. So I started <laughs> writing on my water bottle and even on my refrigerator, you know, uh, you know, peace and love and harmony and, and words that I wanted to focus on, words that I wanted in my water, the feeling, the, the energy of that. Um, I do think, you know, Prayer is amazing, and I think that's what prayer is, the highest you know, vibrational force if you're uh, speaking to God and, and uh, Creator, Universe, um, Great Spirit, that that energy can carry such a profound um, vibration, love, you know, the highest vibration. So I think, uh, I think we can change the waters, and that's why people go to the rivers and pray. Yeah, and I love that old uh, Appalachian song, the going down to the river to pray. It is a baptismal song. It really is. Well, I was I didn't know if I would share this, but I baptized my daughter down at the river. Um, and 
I say I did. I I wanted her to have a ceremony um, at age 11 um, to say, now you're hooked up. You know, you've got your own hookup to divine creator, and you get to decide. It wasn't like a, um, a time of me deciding for her. It was Jesus went to the temple to learn. You know, people do this all around the world in different religions. There's a passage, and we tend not to honor those rites of passage in um, outside of, you know, going into a church and being— um, baptized or confirmed or some of these rituals. Um, so I wanted her to know that she gets to decide how she connects with that spirit and um, creator. And so we, we planned and did our own ceremony and uh, had some friends sing the song we were just talking about, drummer in, process down, and had a beautiful little ceremony. And my mother was there in attendance. So she she read scripture, and we sang and drummed, and I anointed her with the waters. I don't necessarily need to identify it for myself or others what it's like to be in that transformative space. It just is. It's transformative. That is beautiful. So it was it was very sweet moment. Mm. I'm I'm very glad that we we had a, a passage for her. I think at the time she really didn't even understand. Why? Even though we talked about it weeks and weeks and weeks in advance, mm-hmm. but it's still, it's something, you know, I, every person has to embrace. Mm-hmm. It's not always um, the child that intends this. It is often the parents that intend this. Um, but I think the more uh, they grow into it, they realize, you know, it, everybody gets to decide how they operate in the world, whether they're a believer or not. Um what is real for them. And I, I think the thing that is the most real is what we see in nature. It's tangible. Mm-hmm. We can touch, you know, these leaves. We can eat the roots. We can uh, grow flowers. We can take in that beauty in all of our senses. And it does make us, you know, it becomes a part of us. Mm. And I think um, by, I fo- I was following Rudolf Steiner, um his idea of connect the child to mother from one to seven, um, that gives them the stability and the knowing of love and feeling, um, I want to say satisfied, really, uh, but connected. Um, their needs were met. Mm. And that could be a female influence or um, a nurturing father as well. It doesn't mm. have to be... Um, just Archetypal. a female. Arch- thank you. Um, so the but the nurturing part, mm-hmm. one to seven. Then seven to fourteen, he recommended to these are seven steps. Seven, of nurturing? Yeah. Well, there's there was three. I stopped at three. Um, it just put in my okay. understanding. But um, from seven to fourteen, the bond the child to nature hmm. so that they know what's real and can hmm. make decisions later. And for me, it was like 
get her away from the shopping malls, mm-hmm. you know, move her to the country, mm. let her see hay bales and cows on the way to school, um, let her experience running to the river with the dogs after school and playing in the tree swings and learning to swim upstream in the river and canoe downstream and these kind of things and really learn what's real, hear the birds interact with nature and then from 14 to 21 the idea that Steiner put forth and you know he was behind oh you're, the numbers the you're saying are the education ages, ages. yes oh, sorry so I from 1 to that. 7 ages ages 7 i thought you were talking about 14, some kind of like years of age yes esoteric sorry. steps yeah, yeah no you mean the age of the kind person of, exactly oh, okay yeah. okay and then from 14 years of age to 21 you connect them to the father and again it can be the mm-hmm. divine male aspect mm-hmm. um in a male or female form, but that archetype will, as you say, because of uh, statistical, logistical um, reasoning, cognitive mm-hmm. thinking, um, planning, perceiving, those kinds of really concrete ideas of how to live in the world. Yeah, how, you to, know? Fu- material, how to function in the material world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Have a checking account, raise your, you know, how to raise your hood and check your engine, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things that do help us to grow into adulthood um, and reason and and um, make choices. So I, I really felt that that had some significance and relevance, and um, I, I still do. I, I see that that has played out in her life and my daughter's, and many many ways that I see that in um, that helps others. So I went to work at a outdoor education school hmm. um, when Destiny was coming up and she got to jump from hay bales and feed the animals in the morning and do the chores in the afternoon. And Love it. We canoed down the river. I'm taking notes for awesome. my future kids. Exactly. And you live in a wonderful spot for that. I mean, mm-hmm. really just living on the mountain. And I know the mountain you live on is, is just a wonderful um, reconnecting with what is and what is real. And then, of course, learning what to eat around us, what to use as medicine is all a part of that. So many people are being called back to the land. Totally. And to homestead. Exactly. To find a way to utilize resources that are natural without abusing our land, definitely stewarding crops, animals, trees, the resources that we have around us. And then providing for our families, providing for ourselves and um, families and communities. So a lot of the trading I do with my herbal medicine is for my CSA and other hmm. people. I've traded for gluten-free bakery products. I have to, <laughs> I've traded for a lot of things, massage therapy uh, every so often with friends that could use the herbal therapies and would love to do that. So bartering has become a part of the commerce uh, when you have a skill set that you can share um, and you want to be able to offer it to others that maybe, you know, have limited um, monetary resources, mm-hmm. but everybody has something to share and a gift to um, to give. So that's been a really wonderful aspect of being here. Yeah, there definitely seems Green to be conference. a back to the land movement. Um, went back, going back a few steps when you were talking about the sacred spaces, what Mm -hmm. popped up in my head, something I've been listening to recently was I just randomly did like a little historical binge on the Gauls. So the Gauls were the indigenous French and Belgian. So my mom is from Belgium. Oh yes. But, um, 
This is actually probably before our family was in Belgium. I think we were in Spain, like in the 1500s and whatnot. But so I think this is around a thousand, year a thousand. But um, the Gauls were the indigenous people of of France and Belgium, and they were an inland Celtic tribe, tribes, plural. And um, they were all animists and um, all their temples were outside. And they were mainly these sacred oak groves. Oh, yes. And the, one of the craziest things I learned about these characters is that they would surround their sacred groves because all of their temples were outside. You can't keep people out with a door. So they would surround their sacred places with the severed heads of their enemies on pikes. Oh, yes. So I guess that was their fear tactic to say, stay out. This is our sacred place or something. So I found that absolutely fascinating. And anyways, they all ended up all getting wiped out by Caesar. But um, Mm. I found that that concept of um, having these outdoor temples really interesting. I absolutely agree. I've got four books that I'm reading right now on trees, and they're Mm. all really Celtic-based folklore Mm. and... uh, information that, again, I found the same information about the sacred tree groves. Mm. So up at the fire pit, we walked up there a little earlier. We've got a great fire pit, socially distanced um, benches and tables, and a really nice outdoor teaching facility. Um, It's already been held sacred by these wonderful trees, a huge maple, several big oaks, wild cherry. We've got poplar. We've got ironwoods. And sure enough, I was sitting there and saw an elder in bloom last June. First time I'd seen it, but we've been clearing a little bit more, getting the briar patch, you know, further back. And I saw this elder, which would have been Sambucus canadensis in our region. So it it occurred to me after reading these books about the standing tree circles, and I love that. I've been saying these trees are anchoring this this sacred space up there. I wanted to... um, hmm, facilitate that, even expand upon that. So I had my students come down to the elder. We circled our elder patch, and it is the mother tree. It's looked at as the great mother in the Celtic folklore as well, and it gives birth and death. It's it's known for both. Um, and we, you know, spend some time appreciating it and then ask for a little branch. Elders actually um, procreate very easily. In February, I cut back the elders just so I could actually reach the flowers this year. You know, I I cut them back, I prune them, I stick the sticks into a pot of soil, and they root. Hmm. And then I send them home with my students to continue the elder groves all over the place and to share that wealth. And uh, and this is the nigra, Sambucus nigra, which is the black elderberry. So we all chose a, a stick of elder. And we, a branch, I suppose, and and small branches, because you don't want too much sticking up once you put it in. We processed back to the fire pit. We faced the fire, and the idea is letting go into the fire, right? It's transformative. It transmutes. It's like it burns up, whatever. And you can also send your prayers up with the smoke. So we gave our our whatever we were releasing away to the fire, turned around with our elders, walked out 20 paces, and just put them in the ground. So we've got now two circles of elder up there. Um, the next group came in. We did the same thing. And so we're building a circle within a circle, using the elders to surround us and that mother influence, if you will, 
and hopefully, uh, again, just create more elder shrubs here mm. on the property to, you know, um, protect us and, and uh, you know, really ensure that we have that beautiful space from years to come um, full of fruiting and flowering elder bushes. So it's, it'll just be a fun thing to watch Well, that's an interesting idea because um, I guess when you hear about his, these historical sacred spaces, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that the humans would have been interacting to make, because like what you're saying is you're making yep. your, mm-hmm. you and your students are actively participating in creating a sacred natural place. That's kind of interesting. I hadn't quite Absolutely. thought of it that way. Like the sacred grove, having people plant inside of that and shape it. Right. Hmm. And I imagine that, you know, our forefathers and mothers did, you know, come upon a, a natural circle. Um, but I, I, I think it would have been cultivated as well. Saplings, you know, uh, protected, uh, hmm. allowed, some maybe not allowed if th- something was in its way or like where we are uh, using that space, it was all Greenbrier when I mm. moved here. So we invited the Greenbrier to leave or to go further back into the woods and uh, claim that space. It's a beautiful, flat space, and we couldn't access it. Mm. And then by just working with the Greenbrier, and um, now we've got layers of mulch up there, so it's it's keeping down the briars. But they, uh, you know, nature will reclaim. And it reclaims, you know, old houses with vines and uh, pulls down trees if we Mm -hmm. allow those vines to continue. I was living in Fairfax outside of the D.C. Beltway area and um, did work at Smile for a couple years. Floor-to-ceiling herb jars in one room, and they had you know, bulk teas and coffees. And then in another room, it's an old Victorian house. Other room was um, the capsule products and the supplements and a book room and a cosmetic room and a cool hippie uh, dress room that I loved and um, nice gift supplies as well. Met Dr. James Duke when he walked in one day to talk to my boss, Tom Wolf, and... Um, he said something about taking a group of doctors to the rainforest in Peru. And I had electricity run right down through my whole chakra system. It was like, <laughs> just, you know, cold chills and everything. I just knew I had to go. So sure enough, the next time he took a group, I was one of the participants. And in January, we flew to Iquitos in Peru. And it's right, you know, off the river. And we went four hours up river in the Amazon. So we were in a motorized boat that was open-sided, larger than, you know, a canoe for sure, but um, I guess it held 20. And, uh, you know, someone at the the head and and someone at the the back guiding us and with the rudder and everything, um, loud, uh, little little monotonous, uh, but villages along the way, something every now and then fun to see. Um, Saw a group fishing, and they would go out in their small dugouts and 
they'd have some huge fish they were trying to pull in, and they'd whack it on the head. <laughs> like baseball bat almost, or a stick or something. They would just whack it and bring it in. Um, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating. The trees were different. So a lot of what I presume were mango trees along the river, rubber trees were still a bit really high canopy. When we got to the Aesir Lodge and we would walk across wooden platforms because we were off the river, but it would flood through there and we were up a little bit. Um, uh, the trees were just so tall and they were these birds that sounded like water drops and their bird's nests looked like water drops. And it was, oh gosh, I wish I could um, make that sound for you because it did imprint in my mind, but to recall it now for you would be difficult, but they were pendulums. And so I know that the bird's nest was a pendulum, but it sounded like a water drop, you know. And it just, toucan, drinking out of my mug because I left it right outside the door, you know. <laughs> just sitting there, you know, with his snout in my in my mug. We had a lot of macaws were, were living around there because people fed them, you know, whatever, seeds or whatever. At the time, I wasn't willing to take any medicine, and I said to Duke, what are you doing? And he said, well, I just take some sweet Annie for, you know, it's been shown to be good against malaria, but there are, there are no cases of malaria right there. But, you know, that's what I know. And um, I knew that garlic was good. So I ate a fresh clove of garlic a day and took my sweet Annie drops that I'd made just fresh right from the um, uh, Artemisia annua from the backyard of Smile. I'd made a tincture. And I took that every day. And literally, I mean, Jim was just, he's a, he was such a treasure and just <laughs> ethnobotanist that had lived all over in, in Panama and his research plants all over the place. And he had his own garden there at the Aesir Lodge. He started it, at least when we were there and grew it for years um, and would have the, you know, the passport ability to bring in plant matter for USDA. He was working at it at the time. So we got to identify 75 different plants. But what I was about to say, I chuckled about, he would walk around barefooted with the shirt wide open, you know. And we would be out in the rainforest, trekking through knee-deep water to go see these giant lily pads, which were phenomenal. And we got there, and there was one little patch of land and there were two scorpions fighting on this little patch of land. And there was another little patch, and there was a grub worm. And he picked up the grub, and he said, you know, these are edible. This is, you know, something that's considered delicious, and it's a good source of protein. And he bit it, and as he was biting the grub, it bit him on the lip. <laughs> and I could still hear him, like, for another 20 years telling that story, you know. Um, he was just such a character and such a wonderful uh, teacher, my mentor, uh, for the rest of his life, for sure. Um, so I don't know where I was going with this, but that was my wonderful beginning in herbal medicine was with, you know, incredible teachers, wonderful uh, initiation, I guess, would be my, my thought there, initiation into herbalism. And even though I was working at Smile when we came back, I still was tentative about calling myself an herbalist, and I really looked to David Hoffman to be my mentor, and I remember going to him and asking him my 13 questions, you know, like, am I ready to 
do the registered herbalist uh, with the American Herbalist Guild and met Kat Mayer. Um, and she's been my, you know, longtime friend. So Kathleen and I were both teaching herbal medicine, me around the D.C. Beltway in Virginia and her out here in Rappahannock County. And we decided uh, I'd have her come and teach sometimes for me at Smile and offer her as a guest teacher. And we decided we should do something together sometime and did. So we set up Dreamtime Center for Herbal Studies in Washington, Virginia. And I was commuting out and brought the goods. And we ran that business for seven years. And we had, you know, 16 to 20 people uh, a year. And it was awesome. Just awesome. And during that time, we both had our children and... um, now they're 23 and 24, which is really just a delight that we were able to do that at that time. So fast forward, I'm now, we, we, we closed our business in 2002, and I'm in Fairfax, kind of feeling the need to drive west to get back to the mountains and realizing that I needed something more than being in the burbs. And... Um, I asked, you know, I was asking for guidance, and I did a journey, a plant spirit journey, and I was guided by an eagle to come up river. And I wasn't sure where I was going, but I was literally following the eagle. I don't think I was the eagle, but the eagle was, you know, my spirit guide for sure, leading me up river to find my land. That was my quest, find my land. So, um... I did not know it at the time, but Legal lives down by the river that I frequent daily on my walks and have seen them pass over there. And it's called a fish hawk. So eagles, you know, really do like to follow the streams. And of course, they're fishing. Um, but I do think that it was one of my guiding animals here to this property. The other way I knew it was going to be my land is the first time that I drove up to the property, I saw flocks in bloom. And that's what my grandmother had on her bank out in front of her house. And it cut up through the land like the road was lower. Now they had cut through the bank, in other words, to make the road out in front of my house. So you had to come up a steep bank in between the two sides. And that's the way my grandmother's land was with flocks on it and flowers, and she always raised flowers, had an orchard, had grapevines, had all the plants. It was like a little utopia for me um, when I would get to go to Grandma's house and sit under the Concord grapevine or crawl or climb up into the apple trees and eat little green apples and, and so on. So I really just saw my grandmother here, and sure enough, the lady that owned it was a little grandma out sweeping her porch that morning that I came up to see it for the first time. And I knew that I was being led here. I felt Grandma's presence, then found my way to the river, found all the plants on the riverbank. And it was like, we promised you, here here they are. What do you mean when you said plant journey? Well, it's a shamanic training to... Um, connect with a spirit of um, a land or a, a plant and ask for what it has to teach you. And we would um, practice 
the plant journeys. Um, we, I've had several teachers, and I found that when I would allow myself to do a visualization would be another way of thinking about it. A lot of people do visualizations, and you could even say, you know, you could meditate on that. And I, But you call in your, your guide, your sacred circle, your um, counselors, if you will, and ask for protection, connect with the plant, ask it to take you uh, on a journey to discover what you need to discover about maybe how to use it or maybe a personal question. So it was in a series of journeys and uh, in a year that I was really soul searching. What is mine to do? Where am I to be? What's the next generation of green comfort? Um, And I really felt, I I just felt the power of nature uh, guiding me. Um, Certainly with grandmother there, um, I've got a powerful circle, I must say. You know, I don't want to identify them all um, by name, uh, but there's a, you know, there's it's it's an indigenous population of people that have gone before, or representatives. We'll just say um, that I find um, very helpful to to go to um, energetically and you know ask for help or guidance in in some way. Whether it's medicine making, seeing a client, dealing with family issues. You know, I definitely believe, you know, in asking and we receive, whether it's through your prayer and meditation, you know. I, I believe the, the scripture says God works in mysterious ways, and that is for sure. <laughs> and I do not limit um, that divine entity, you know, the divine energy, if you will. So I think it speaks to us in many different ways. And, and we have... Um, you know, the the ability to call in um, these plants or animals or teachers um, that might help guide us to what our soul is seeking and what our, you know, um, what we're attracting, if you will, in this form. I do think we're, you know, physical beings living as spiritual, a spiritual being living a physical presence, actually. Um, And so this is me embodiment, but I'm acting out, you know, uh, through co-creating this life, if you will. Yeah, I have to still buy the table, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's it's all kind of manifest. So you're saying these are, you feel as though you have a series of spiritual guides? I do. That's why I call them a council. I think it's a circle. You know, you can call in your circle. I mean, people, you know, pray to Allah, pray to Jesus, pray through their, um, whatever their lineage is, and they've been taught to ask for help. Well, if the help is then the creation, creator, all that is, all that has ever been, um, we name it. Man, women tend to name things. And so I've named mine. You know, I definitely have visited with them and they visit with me. And I feel that that is an important part of what um, gives me foundation and support. I'm not out here just willy-nilly. 
Do you think that the same group of characters have been there for your whole life? Oh, you know, that's that's a very interesting question. I don't know that I would have known my whole life who was there, um, whether it was someone from, you know, like my mother's people are definitely English. Ashworth is her last name. Uh, Boardwine is my um, maiden name from my dad's side. And I just knew them to be in the Appalachian Mountains and nowhere else. I mean, there were Boardwines there and zip, nowhere else. But having looked back at it, I'm imagining uh, France, Bordeaux, Bordvin, um, and some German. And then, you know, my sister did her um, 23 and Me. We have the same parents. So identifying my, my heritage in that respect, um, I have always felt that I had this this person uh, at my side with, and it was maybe a, um, a a mother figure, but not necessarily my mother in, in a past life or something, but a mothering figure. And certainly I have felt both grandmothers. Um, I have a great grandmother, Bordwine, Francis Bordwine, who was a midwife of the um, Appalachian Mount, Mountains who would go out by horseback to families and stay there for a week at a time before the baby came and do whatever. So I know she must have known the plants because that's all they had. Um, and dad had some good stories. She she died at 101. She was 101 years old, and I did meet her. I didn't know enough to ask stories, you know. So before my grandmother, Bordwine, died, I asked her to tell me stories and she did, and I got a few stories from her, like how my dad um, survived uh, diphtheria uh, when he was five and had his huge high fever, and they didn't have money for medicine, and they had to go borrow some money, and they had no car, and but they got him to the doctor in time to save his life, or else I wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, so there's some uh, some interesting stories on the Boardwine side, and they were pretty much dirt poor, you know, Appalachian mountain folk. Uh, but where did they come from, you know, before that? So that's that's always been interesting. So I think some of our, um, you know, finding a spirit guide could be from lineage. When I sit in Grandma Ashworth's rocking chair, and I know we used to rock in that chair in her house on the wood floor like it was a hobby horse. You know, it was just the kids. Uh, I'm one of like 25. Yeah, I, I've got like that many first cousins, but mm. I'm number four, so I was one of the older ones. And uh, yeah, we were just rocking it like crazy. And then mom got the chair and I, I've had the chair, I don't know, 20 years or so now for, for a very long time. So that's where I teach from. I, I feel her presence in my life. Uh, raised Christian, love Jesus, have Jesus on my side. So definitely feel mm. that presence of the the person that I learned as a carpenter and a healer, you know, a teacher that that did miracles, but also said, "Hey, you can do that." You know, if you believe, you can do that. So I just think that's one of the coolest things I've got going on. When you were talking about the plant medicine, what plant were you talking about? Well, it I, you know, at that particular time when I journeyed and the eagle took me up river, I cannot tell you, but I do know that I've journeyed with uh, red clover and turned into the red clover fairy. So, <laughs> you know, I could, I came back and it was during a class situation. So I came back and you share your stories then and everybody's telling a tale. And I'm like, most of the time didn't. And uh, I'd been a, 
uh, a lot of the classmates' uh, teacher, and sometimes you just want to kind of keep keep your own stories to yourself, you know. So this time I, I shared, and I, I was sitting up because I was like, I can't smash my fairy wings. If I sat back, I'd smash my fairy wings. And you just you just feel things sometimes that feel, you know, in your mind you would rationalize them away for sure. You know, it's is, is that true? Um, but our truth is whatever we're believing or telling ourselves at the time, I, I think, often. And... Um, that that was that was my story. That was my experience. I flew around like a little red clover fairy, dipping in and having nectar and seeing things from a totally different angle. And I love that. I love that flying aspect and looking at the earth in a in a different perspective and going above to see what is below. Uh, really can be quite helpful when you're trying to discern. So from what's consuming real. the red clover. You had oh, consumed it and had this this visionary experience? I would like to say I consumed it. I drink teas all day long. But I must say, I don't know that that was true. I pro- mm. No, I put one in my mouth. Mm. I did. I went out and laid in the, um, in the grasses and um, put a red clover in my mouth. And yeah, that and was... And had this visionary experience. That, mm-hmm, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I have uh, consumed quite a few plants in my life. And uh, I do think... When you're honoring the plant, you go to it, you make an offering, you you communicate a little bit, you know, just hello, you know, I'm Teresa, and you are incredible, and I appreciate you, I appreciate the way you look, I appreciate the gifts that you give, what I know about you, how I feel when I come to you, but just appreciation of the plant, and then you explore it, like, what's at its roots, what does it grow with, who comes to pollinate, what ants are around, what bees are flying, what, so what's going on in its little environmental uh, ecosphere. And then you, you may, you know, ask to taste it. You might pop some in your mouth, have it, you know, just for feel sake, uh, definitely uh, touching and, um, you know, even tracing. I'm not such a great artist, so a lot of times I'll trace I'll trace the plant, but trying to etch it out or get some kind of image of it to stay. Uh, often a journey includes a journaling. So, you know, anything that that you're perceiving or taking in for information, but that's not necessary. You know, it depends on the, uh, the reason in which you're journeying. You might want to have your journal just in case you get a, a long download, a message back. And then as you go into journey when you're, you know, you call in your collective circle to protect you, you know, there's many spirits that won't end. Mm. Uh, you know, that's why we, we talk a lot about zombies in our culture, <laughs> the the walking dead kind of idea, the, the soulless, they're the ones that are looking to slip in. And that's, you know, part of the belief system that I, that I have um, that I think surrounding yourself in the light Surrounding yourself by your counsel, surrounding yourself by good, uh, using images that work for you. It can be, you know, rainbow colors, um, what, what you know, people uh, put around them in some kind of way uh, for protection. And then when you're, you know, working on that level, then asking the deities, asking the divine to show you what it is that you need to see. 
what you need to see, what you need to feel, what you need to hear, experience. And people get it in all different ways. You can get a visual, you know, a whole story is just like movie downloaded. You can just hear things and think, I remember hearing a helicopter, and it wasn't a helicopter at all. It was um, uh, wings, and, you know, what what did that symbolize, and where was that going, and um, how did that feel, you know? It can be a feeling. It can be colors just as you close your eyes, and the colors are morphing in front of your eye eyelids and that sort of thing. So I, I think it has, you know— um, Do you have any examples of personal experience— with a with a plant that you got some download of information that later on you found in in science or in folklore like do you have an example of your own personal experience that then later on connected to some other body of work well i will say that in having done this as a course mm. at one point um i loved evening primrose it grows here in the summer and is in full bloom. And I discovered it's a fairy plant and that fairies love it. And I love fairies. <laughs> I love the idea of fairies, you know. Mm. Um, have I ever seen a fairy? No, but I love the whole idea of kind of becoming that red clover fairy, if you will. And when my daughter, um, well, when I was pregnant, um, I saw fairies. I thought she was going to be a little boy and turned out, nope. And she told me that. And um, I started seeing fairies everywhere and bought fairies for a room and painted fairies, you know. So I was into this whole fairyland. And I, I love the idea that the fae, you know, played tricks. And mm. sometimes I'm like, okay, the fairies moved the book. I don't know where it went. I'm just going to wait for them to return it because they're playing a trick on me. <laughs> and it's really, you know, I just misplaced it perhaps, but that's okay. So um, found out that Evening Primrose had fairies. It's a night plant. And so when the primrose opens, you know, it's like the fairies come out and dance and they have this whole evening ritual and they're playful and, and I, you know, just felt this whole lot of information coming in and had a different understanding that I would have medicinally or medicinal uses of. And what I know medicinally is that the seeds provide oil, and the oil has GLA, gamma linolenic acid, which is really wonderful for women going through the change of life. Hmm. It's one of the things I use for um, perimenopause and menopausal issues and hot flashes in particular. And we even use uh, EPO, evening primrose oil, um, for uh, ripening a cervix before birthing. So lots of uses, wonderful essential fatty acid. Um, very nutritional, takes a ton of plants to get that oil, of course, from those seeds. But just a new realization that this plant wasn't just here for our use, just here for our need, but had its own world and its own mm. world that we don't see, mm. you know, going on. And and I think that's the way most plants are. They have pollinators zipping in and out and ants coming in or bees flying over and flies, you know. And they have a whole, um, you know, mall living in their, in their limbs and on their branches or in their flowering heads. And we just say, oh, it's pretty, you know, mm. it's colorful or something. So I have learned lots of things like that 
from connecting with plants, visualizing, meditating on them, journeying with them, like how they want to be seen. Not necessarily for my use, you know. It doesn't have to be about me. It doesn't even have to be about what I need to be teaching others. You know, that's been my role as an educator of herbal medicine is what then I can share with other people that I've learned from my teachers or books or trainings. Um, And sometimes plant journeys aren't about that at all. It's very personal, very private, very, you know, well, I'll just show you this little bit because you asked me, you know, and then you'll have to work for the rest. They don't always give you the full download for sure. I have friends that get full downloads, mind you, and that will write a story um, and uh, have amazing, vivid um, uh, experiences and imaginations. And one of my students now has a podcast, and she uh, was here. And the day that she came, I think it's all right if I say it without naming her, she came as a client, and in the shower I got ladies' mantle. And I was like, okay, did a full intake during a clinical setting. So I had maybe four or five other students with me, did the full intake, making up a tea for me. And I just looked and went, have you ever considered ladies mantle? And she said the same thing back to me. Like we just like right there, right then. And it has become a business. I mean, she grew into the plant whisperer that was calling her soul to do this work. And it's just been a beautiful revelation. So when plants speak, it can come in the shower. (laughs) You don't have to be in some journey, you know, really seeking knowledge and information. Sometimes they just, oh, come freeze in my mind's eye. Wonder why? Wonder what that's about. And somebody comes in and says, you know, I just strained my muscle. What can I do? Mm. You're like, well, let's make you up a comfrey poultice. Mm, so, so they'll speak to you if you're listening. I mean, mm. they're always talking. So mm. in your clinic, when you're working with the clients, sometimes you'll just have these in, oh these intuitive moments where you know exactly the plant. The plant is speaking to you to then pass on to your client. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, and we just call that intuition. Mm. And I, I, I worked with some very powerful, very knowledgeable, very. Um, well-educated herbalist, naturopaths, and I would, I would reckon that most of them have a space for intuition. Mm. You know, we'll do primary, secondary, tonic, adaptogens. We'll do catalyst or harmonizers, and have all these parts to all of our formulas, whether it be tea or tincture. And we'll have, you know, a way of figuring out the the percentages and how to make a wonderful formula for this particular person's individual needs. And then there's intuition. Mm. <laughs> and there's intuition. And rightly so. It's just as valuable. If if I'm sitting with somebody and I keep hearing, you know, mm-hmm. a certain plant, but, you know, oh, it didn't fit in my categories or la da 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 and, you know, I rule it out, somehow it's going to bring me back mm. because you just, if you're open and ready to receive the information, you get it. And if you get it, not to use it is a shame. Like it will mm. somehow, you know, come back into your mind's eye or mm. fester up. And and so I do literally write down 
the next things that I've thought of right after I've seen a client too, mm. just to download, you know, and then we could do this, 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 and this. So sometimes it does come after the fact. Often I will be interviewing and, you know, my intakes are very lengthy. They're an hour at least just in taking down the his- history and current issues as well, uh, my body systems and all of it, constitutional and so on. And I'll look over at the herb jars that are all labeled in their botanical names and common name, and I'll just wait. And I'm like, is it there? Is it there? Is it there? And I kind of go through that. I'm not saying it out loud. I'll just kind of wait. I know there's something else. What Now, what is it that I'm missing? And, and, and then a lot of times it just comes in. Mm. Or it may be that I'm really trying to pull up a harmonizer or a, you know, catalyst or something in particular. And, and I just haven't identified what that one is until it comes back to my mind's eye or something brings it forward. But um, I love the intuitive approach. I, I think that to deny intuition um, and only go from our cognitive, you know, mm-hmm. frontal lobe um, would would really be a shame. Mm-hmm. I just think we would be missing so much. I mean, we do by touch, feel. And now we've named it. Um, organoleptics is actually being utilized in identifying what plant matter is. What's so that you, word? Isn't that interesting? So organic material, leptis meaning the five senses. Hmm. So organoleptic, you look at it, Suss it out. Mm, it doesn't have those little triangles. Hmm, I know skull cap to have those little triangles. Wonder where those little triangles are. Wonder where that skull cap is. And then you'll you'll look at the plant matter. Well, does it have a blossom? I know that that plant has a certain blossom. I don't see that. You know, or oh, there's an abundance of that. It must be this. So you visual visual, mm. and then you may smell it. Mm. And um, you know, I've had people open that capsule. Okay, take your wet finger and dip into it and taste it on your tongue. If it's not bitter, it's not golden seal. You know, they've put some yellow pigment in a capsule, but it may not be golden seal. So there's sometimes that taste makes all the difference. If echinacea doesn't tingle the tip of your tongue, it's probably not a good echinacea, maybe not echinacea at all. So anyway, so the uh, sight and um, taste, um, certainly... Uh, the smell, crushing up an herb and sniffing it gives you a lot of different aromas, especially those volatile oils that are being released with the heat of our hands makes a huge difference. So it's all using all the senses to identify the plant matter and, you know, agreeing with what the label says, agreeing with the manufacturer or the shipper or the plant matter that you just harvested. Um, I've had students make mistakes, and Mm. it's important to know the difference between, say, burdock and yellow dock. Burdock's always going to have a white underleaf, Mm. uh, and yellow dock does not. Mm. Yellow dock does not always have the red in the stem because that's showing the iron uh, that is coming from the red clay soil here, Um, but you just need to know the difference between those two. Um, so there's other things. Dig the root. Yellow dot's going to be a yellow root, mm. and burdock's going to be a white root, and it's going to smell acrid and have that, you know. So th- those kind of things are really important. Mugwort and motherwort get mixed mm. up, and I just think it's the wort and people, mm-hmm. you know, moving quickly. 
But until you really know, the leaf is totally different. Totally different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you really need to know that. But I will still have students press out an herb and want to call it one and not mm. the other just because that's flipped in their mind. And we have to, you know, say it several times, but also really get a close-up look at what that plant matter looks like and how different it really is. Do you have any examples that um, you would have permission to speak on, on um, how a client has been healed or helped or mm. with a particular plant and their ailment. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about people's um, issues, but if you have a really profound example of how herbalism has healed somebody, I mean, it'd be amazing to hear that. Well, I'll start with a simple example then Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of uh, your listeners could benefit from. Um, There there are so many. As long as we're not mentioning names, I do... Mm -hmm talk about my clients because I use them as reference points right. in my teaching. Great. You know, I've had a client that used this and recovered and then mm-hmm. that amazing. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it'll work for you too. And it's not always the case, but I will find the most profound, uh, and I'm using your word, but I don't usually use cure, but healing. You know, mm-hmm. like we can facilitate the healing, uh, not me, but the plants. And so marshmallow root, Althea officinalis. So marshmallow root is has an amazing amount of saponins. And the polysaccharides, multiple sugars, are sweet and soft and water-soluble. So you can take the marshmallow root, and I'm talking about dry root at this point that I've ordered and, you know, comes through... Uh, different herb companies, and I'll put a tablespoon per pint of water, cold infusion, just tap water. Cold infusion, let it sit out for a little while, and you'll see that the root is so porous that it'll rise to the top, and then later you'll see the uh, mucilage drip from that root through the water. It gets thick. It gets a little slimy. Usually we'll um, use a, just a sieve and sift it out, and I'll share it with the students, and they all ooh and ah over how sweet it is, how delicious it tastes. You smell it, and it's like, oh, that's a little odd. Oh, it tastes like maple syrup. Okay, that's interesting. Well, the most profound healing that I have seen is from GERD, is of GERD, the gastroesophageal reflux disease or disorder. So... GERD is very um, uh, common these days. Describe what it is. Well, it's acid reflux. So a little bit of acid is like gets thrown up, if you will, from your cardiac sphincter at the top of your stomach up into your um, alimentary canal, that esophageal uh, tube, and it burns, and it's irritating, and it... Um, can aggravate sleep apnea. It can feel like a heart attack. It can mimic so many hiatal hernia. It can mimic so many different conditions. Well, um, on the occasion I watch television, there are a lot of commercials for um, protease pump inhibitors medicine that is made to stop stomach acid. So you can go ahead and eat that barbecue. So you can go ahead and have that big, fat, juicy, you know, fat-laden, you know, 
with uh, whatever it is, with french fries on top. Um, so these meals that then are, um, that accompany, or we use wine to accompany them or have a beer on top of that, and we have acid then, tannic acid from the red wine, um, uh, uh, carbonated and maybe acid from uh, a beer on top of that. Or it could be orange juice, you know, orange juice in the morning with coffee. And then at night, the 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 alcoholic beverage or a carbonated beverage, just irritation. Um, so then introduce the marshmallow root cold infusion, and it's life changing. It really is. So one of my um, the people that I'm thinking of, uh, a restauranteur that uh, swears by it, just because she's offered so many foods um, and she has to try the foods of the restaurant and is out to dinner and every all the business meetings is around food, you know, that there was just so much of a uh, influx, just finding a way to mediate that, you know, sipping on the uh, marshmallow ahead of time, having it after dinner is a good idea. If I wake up with a little stomach acid issue, I'm definitely having my marshmallow root cold infusion. Then there was a gentleman, is one of my students' uh, husbands, that swears by it for his ulcer. Like, he didn't know what else to do. He'd done all the um, protease pump inhibitors and, you know, uh, which shuts off stomach acid, which is exactly what you don't want. Hmm. Actually, we usually have lower stomach acid. He just feels so acidic because, of course, it's, it's, um, it's spewing up through, you know, an unclosed... Uh, aggravated um, sphincter and irritating the... So the that mucilaginous pain. substance, yeah. that's creating like a lubricant or something? So you're not... Thank so you. It's not burning you up? Yes. So the action word is called demulsant, and hmm. the um, polysaccharides have this mucilaginous capability that coats. Hmm. So exactly. And it's anti-inflammatory. So we just have this nice soft coating. It's... Um, yeah, anti-inflammatory and neutralizing to the gut acids, I guess. To the and everything needs a mucosal membrane, soft pink layer with you know um, protection. And when we have a lot of tannins in our diet, they will. Well, you've tanned some hides. I've mm-hmm. seen your uh, demos on uh, tanning, and you're trying to precipitate off that protein layer. You're using tannic acid to scrape down what would then have been protecting the inside of the animal, the mucous membranes. So um, when you're scraping off of that, that's kind of what the, sorry, black tea, coffee, red wine, uh, and other tannin-rich, even some plant matter, um, oak leaves, you know, very tannic. So if we are consuming tannins on a regular basis, they tan our hides hmm. on the inside. Fascinating. So putting back I haven't that done any natural membrane. tanning yet. I've prepared pelts okay. and I send them to a tannery and I've tried I one see. with the chemical stuff, but I haven't tried natural tanning yet. But that's fascinating. That would be interesting to do, wouldn't it? Um, huh, very interesting about the marshmallow root. Marshmallow root. So, and it's delicious. So just having some on occasion, I, I guess before we kind of close, um, having grown up in Appalachia, is there any plant folklore that you learned when you were young or you've learned even recently that mm-hmm. is uh, 
ties into Appalachia and this mountain range? Is there any plant folklore that you know of that would be interesting to share? Well, I guess the morels come to mind. Hmm. Um, in southwest Virginia, where my dad grew up and my stepmother and family still live, um, they were called dry land fish. I had no idea they were morels. <laughs> I seriously didn't know that name. And they would harvest them by the you know shopping bag full and salt water. You know, I say cure them, but salt water, you know, clean them and then slice them open and freeze them or dip them in meal. Now, meal is always cornmeal. Dip them in meal to batter them and fry them. Well, everything's better fried, especially if you're Southern. So um, that's the only way I'd had them for years. And then moving here and finding morels, I was so delighted to hear, you know, more legends and folklore and how to find them. And um, Rappahannock County has a lot of old apple orchards and where our herb school um, had been originally Dreamtime Center for Herbal Studies. We were on an apple orchard and would go out under the trees and there'd be morels or up in the woods under the poplars, there would be morels. So I'd found some morels um, out here in Rappahannock and then having moved here, you know, I'd just be walking along the path to the river and there'd be one in the middle of the path and I'd be like, oh, okay, this must be the time in the season. But they're really to capture your attention. Talking about fairies being tricksters. I think those morels are, are a little trickster too. And there's a there's a story about them being Merkles, and that's what they would call them. Just south of us in Culpeper, they were known as Merkles. And I was like, what word is that? But I'm pretty sure that was due to the fact it was um, cultural slang, but it was due to them being such a miracle to find. So you would call for them. And, God, that's cool. Yeah. So now I've made up my little song. Sometimes the plants like to be sung to, you know. So there's a Merkle, Merkle, Merkle. And you just, you have to, you know, go and chant a little bit and sing to them. And uh, sure enough, they might just show themselves. Um, two years ago, couldn't find any in the woods anywhere and had a group of young people come to do a plant walk. And they um, they really asked me to do this. So I planned my day for them. And they came out from the city and they were here all day. And we went Wild food harvesting, put together this huge feast. One was filming. We were having a good time, and they were making all the food and being very creative with fiddleheads and poke shoots. And I do have some ramps that I've brought here, but they've multiplied quite nicely, and we use those and, you know, all kinds of um, garlic nettle pesto and making just delicious um, uh, fritters with dandelion flowers and red buds and violets and things like that. You've got to try that. But we hadn't found a morel and really, really, really wanted to. So one of the young men was coming into the larger yurt, this one, the Green Comfort Teaching Facility, and right outside the door, I mean, just popped up. Like, what? Where were you? <laughs> 20 minutes ago, even. And there was this large white morel just to the side of the door. And so, of course, we start scouting around. There's one right under it right under the yurt. Never had seen them there before. Do not know why. And they haven't been there again. But they came when we called. You know, I really think they came when we called, but also popped up where we could see them and appreciate them. Not down in the woods, not where we were 
we had just been and not found any. So I do think that was a miracle. So Merkel, they, Merkel, there Merkel. is some. I mean, I don't know enough about mushrooms yet. It's maybe where I'm the most novice. But uh, past two seasons, I've, last year and the year before, I haven't had a chance. This year, you know, gone out morel hunting. Yeah. Um, there's something so, like you're saying, so bizarrely mysterious about yeah. them, and it's like you're they're not there, and then you see them, and then they're there all over the place. Exactly. And it's like, wow, is that how just how the brain works, or is there like really something Merkley about them? I think there's, there's both. Some, yeah, something wow. About both. Um, well, in closing, let's say a little bit about your class if people are interested to take some of your classes. But before that, yeah. do you have any, because you were just talking about taking these city folks to do a little plant walk. Mm-hmm. Are there any interesting, um, maybe traditional, Appalachian traditional um, recipes for eating anything? Because you were just saying a few that were really oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. You're saying the dandelion fritters. I need to try that. Oh, that's excellent. I've been it's doing so a fun. lot of pestos with mm-hmm. um, the invasive garlic mustard. Yes. And we've been doing a pet. Um, last night I made um, I made a salsa verde with stinging nettle. Oh. Incredible. Oh, my. So I, I, like, I want that recipe. cooked up a poblano pepper, uh-huh. cooked up some onions and garlic, and then chucked in a ton of stinging nettle and just blended it up. And I used that. We had with our beaver meat, we had beaver tacos with sting, stinging nettle salsa verde. Oh, oh, funny. unreal. That's <laughs> unreal. That's gourmet eating right there. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, do you have a quick little recipe that um, would be easy for, for folks to do? Well, let's go back to the pesto because that's mm-hmm. something that most of us know the taste of and mm-hmm. the idea of that. And so easily to make with your garden uh, weeds, mm-hmm. really. Um, so I do have stinging nettles. They are the European variety I brought here, started, and now they've taken over. So um, I love to give them away. And people come and harvest my patches, but also we, you know, say, take up a big, you know, uh, trash bag full home and replant them. Uh, also tinks to the root. So there's, you know, a lot of use for that plant. As an edible weed, it's one of the most nutritious. So it has a lot of chlorophyll, calcium, iron, just chock-a-block, you know, and all the, you think about the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, K, mm. they're all in those green leafy vegetables. So Nettle has a lot, but you have to bust open that cell wall. And when you said chuck it in, that's exactly right. You put it in a Vitamix, a food processor, a blender, and blend the bejeebies out of it to bust open those cell walls so it won't have the formic acid sting that's on the little hairs of the nettle Yeah, yeah, plant. okay. So, right. so either by cooking or, or crushing or cutting up. Exactly. So for the pesto, uh, we'll harvest some nettle, especially this time of year, nettle tips, the tops of them before we go into a seed or flower. And garlic mustard, I love that. And that's easy to identify. And we'll come back to say, please identify your plants uh, before eating and ingesting. Um, then I like chickweed in there because it's a fat emulsifier and mm. it's big. It's got a little leggy right now, but early spring plant. Self Hill, the actual leaves of Self Hill are excellent. That and that's Prunella vulgaris. Self Hill is also called Hill All, and it's abundant in my area and uh, readily available. And I've used different things at times. I I like to stay with those two or three or four mostly. Um, but so you do a medley. Medley. You chuck them all in. Yes. Mm. So if you'll use your olive oil, garlic. And whatever nut you like. Now, the traditional might be on the recipe, pine nuts, which are 
terribly expensive, mm. hard to get in my region. I buy by the five pound bag, um, unprocessed, unroasted um, sunflower seeds. I have walnuts typically, and I had pumpkin seeds. And I like the pumpkin seeds. I've made it p- with pistachio, shelled pistachios, mm. and that's really a rich flavor. So a handful of nuts, a lot of garlic, your olive oil, and then instead of cheese, because I have so many folks that I feed and a lot of people are dairy sensitive, mm. I've used miso, mm. the soybean uh, paste. So I'll use some miso for that umami, salty um, deliciousness that it gives. And um, that could be a tablespoon to a tablespoon and a half or more. Um, and I like chickpea, so the the lighter one, the uh, vanilla-looking one, yellow. Um and then again, just blending it up in your food processor is a is an amazing thing. And if it needs to be thinned out, more oil, a lemon, a juice of a half a lemon to a full lemon. So you're making like volume. a pesto hummus. To me, it is a dip, but mm. also I um, I can toss it onto the hot pasta, and it becomes more of a dressing of the mm. pasta. But I I might I hope. I might have misspoken. It's chickweed. Oh, chickweed. Uh, I don't know if I said chickweed. But chickweed as one of the greens because of oh, the okay. mostly yes. factant. And it's so uh, proliferant here and so edible. And a good way to eat greens, really. Um, so, yeah, that makes a great dip. You can cut up carrots and celery. And like you say, almost like a, a hummus, you could certainly make it more of a paste or more of a dressing. Um, we made wild onion dressing, and we made mm. it. Uh, like a goddess dressing. There was a wonderful goddess dressing made by Annie's, and it had tahini in it and a soy base, like a miso in there as well. And I love the soy in like a ginger and onion and and savory dressing. So uh, we've made up the wild onion goddess dressing several times. And sometimes I'll put the tops of the green onions or go pinch a little parsley out of the garden or some, you know, even violet leaves, something else mm. green in that, in that dressing. And it's just delicious over Yummy. your wild food salads. Yummy. Lots of recipes. Nice. Thank you. Not Do you pleasure. want to uh, say a little bit about the class and if anyone mm-hmm. wants to enroll in the future, et cetera? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, well, my herb school is called Green Comfort School of Herbal Medicine. The website is greencomfortherbschool.com. And I'm running about five programs at the time. Um, I changed up my curriculum and made it accessible during the time of COVID um, so that we're taking less students and we have distancing within the yurt. We're wearing masks. Outside of the yurt, we don't tend to unless we're crowding in on one another. And right now I'm running an herbal apothecary program. And I already have that one up on the website for 2022. That will be a standalone program. But I'll also run my holistic herbal foundations program again. We started in March uh, here this year to go through the growing season. And I just love it. Uh, there are 11 students in that program. We'll go 10 months. We uh, provide the two lunches on a Saturday and a Sunday and overnight accommodations if people need it hmm. so they can come in from a distance. And this uh, it's, particular it's once year— once a month for 10 months? Once a month for 10 months, yes. And this particular year, um, 
has just started out to be such a treat because people are so eager for this kind of information. You know, to learn a body system and to learn medicine making and go out and identify the plants and have some experiences while you're here in a group of like-minded people that are wanting to learn, you know, how nature provides and how to use these plants as medicine is just such a thrill. And so, e each month is a body system? It is, yes. I go through a body system a month and a variety of uh, plant-making, medicine-making uh, techniques. Um, the way I like to think about it is whatever someone needs, I need to think about how I would provide that for them. Hmm. So if it's a syrup or throat gargle, uh, a patch for skin, balm, baths. We even do Herbal Spa Day as part of our curriculum in the on the apothecary side. And this particular program merged the foundations at apothecary, and it's just a lot of fun, really a lot of fun. Uh, it's a joy. I do run a clinic, and my clinical students are students that have gone through my foundations program or someone else's. And we see clients, and I call it a practicum because it's whoever walks in the door, whatever their needs are. We listen. We do a thorough intake. We um, make our recommendations. Um, they don't have to buy a thing if they don't care to. Uh, it's education. It's information. Um, if they do care for um, a personal product to be made, we, we do that as well. And that's just an amazing service. I learn myself just Every time we see someone, uh, I learn from each group. We're also studying and doing preparing protocols. We go deep uh, with one of my clinics. I'm, we're doing diabetes, sugar, mm. uh, balancing, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, insulin resistance, and hypoglycemia. Just lumping it all together and taking it from A to Z how to work with the body and the endocrine system to really work with sugar and then protect organs as well mm. for these different diagnoses, but with all within that um, insulin and sugar issue. And another clinic is working on continuing a trauma protocol that I worked up with a, a different set of students some time ago. And having just been through one of the more traumatic years of uh, mm. my life, um, it's very needed and it's something I want to make available to the public. Um, but right now it's for our educational resource that we can offer as herbalists to others to and to become trauma-informed caregivers. Hmm. Um, so they say, um, just assume everyone's been traumatized and it is, you know, what happened to you is like, just assuming. So certain plants to heal psychological trauma? Oh, absolutely. Mm. And it, you know, there's a lot of uh, brain cognition, mm. um, uh, psycho-spiritual, nervous system traumas, limbic system, the old storage area of the brain that was traumatized, you know, by youth or neglect or um, just, just so many different reasons that mm. one would have trauma natural disaster traumas, whatever, but it impacts the body in a very um, profound way. Uh, and it's body, mind, soul, you know, all the layers um, can hold this trauma. So it's not for me to identify or to release, but to inform us and to work with the folks that come to us in a way that might 
um, precipitate their healing mm. and their use of these plants as medicine for um, help for, you know, it could be something that they spray in the room. It could be mm. something that they sniff when their uh, triggers come up. It could be a nervine. It could be a flower essence. It could be uh, a, a, a large protocol right now. So there's mm. many different ways to support one another. I, lo I love herbal medicine. I love teaching. I love facilitating my students' um, ongoing process. Many have way surpassed me and it, hmm. it thrills my heart to see them as uh as naturopaths and as uh practitioners as running apothecaries putting their products on the market um it's just an amazing career field that has busted wide open since i started in the 80s and and early 90s and um people are being um led back to the plants you mm -hmm. know they're they're really seeing the need to step away from modern medicine, well, not even that, but to balance themselves so that they don't have the need for the pharmaceutical preparations mm -hmm. and drugs as needed. So, so may it, mote it be, you know, mm -hmm. bless it and take those medicines if needed. But there's so much that we do. I say we treat, you know, the whole person and support the individuals and not just treat a disease. We try to work with uh, a person that would um, then be able to help themselves. Mm. It, not be herbalist dependent by any means, but educated in the ways uh, that plant medicine can can benefit. So that's my greatest joy is to pass that along. <laughs> well, and that's thank you. why I like to teach. Yes, well, thank you. And thank you for teaching my mom. And then thank you for uh, affecting my life and the ripples of what you're doing. I'm glad to do so. You're my birthday brother. <laughs> That's right. We have the same birthday, <laughs> three, Pisces, 33. Three. Three, three. That's right. And I just got to 34. This last oh, year was my awesome. 33rd year. So oh, what it's a transformative. Three, 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 three. Right on. And that's, and you know, Jesus is, you know, died All on about the cross the at 33. So I, I had it, I'm, I'm glad to have not died last year and got right, past. Right. But it was a transformative year. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you, you felt it in, in many ways in that. Totally. Yeah, the patterning. We see patterns. I love that. All right, should we wrap this up? Sure. All right, anything you, you wanted to say in conclusion, and we're good to go. Blessings all. Find durable medicine.